Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. All right, today we are going to talk about creation, fall, redemption. It's that classic narrative arc that uh, is the basis for some of our greatest novels, some of Hollywood's greatest films. Think about Anakin Skywalker's journey in Star Wars to Darth Vader to redemption, uh, Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life, uh, Oscar Schindler in Schindler's List, even uh, Scrooge, right, in A Christmas Carol is on that arc. Um, and, and in real life, we, we love to see that story play out. Think about athletes. So Michael Vick, Tiger Woods had meteoric rises to the top and then equally precipitous falls. And then we got to see them claw back and climb back uh, for some level of redemption. We're drawn to these stories. We're intrigued by them. Why is that? Well, I think it's because it's our story. It's the story of God and his church, of us, starting in Eden with creation and what life was intended to be, what we were created for. Then, of course, the fall when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, exiled from the garden. And then one day we'll be fully redeemed, fully returned to that, what we were created for in heaven or the new Jerusalem, as we'll see in a second in Revelation. So uh, I want to spend some time at each phase of that arc, a little bit uh, in Eden and then a little bit more in heaven or the new Jerusalem, and we'll see some parallels there, and I think that'll help us understand a little bit what awaits us. But I want to spend most of our time on the present, on the in-between where we are now, because I think it more than anything else can give us a full appreciation of what we'll inherit and live in one day. All right, let's start with Eden. So we're going to go to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to read verses 8 through 15. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, and take care of it. So I wish we could really camp out here and go through all of Genesis 2 and 3, but I think we get a picture from this passage, and I think you're probably familiar somewhat with Eden. Just think in your mind for a second, this lush, abundant land with fruit from all the trees, all of God's creation is there, and we're there. And we see in Genesis 3 that, that God is there fully, 
physically, and he walks with Adam and Eve. And what's more, we have a purpose. We were made for a purpose. We were made to work the garden and to care for it. Now, that sounds wonderful, I think, but I don't think we can fully grasp it until we see then what we're going to move into eventually because there's parallels, and I want to draw some of those parallels so we can understand. Let's go to Revelation 21, and we'll start at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of, the, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. So here we see the first aspect of Eden as it was created, perfect and good and eternal, reinstated, redeemed in the new Jerusalem in heaven. God will be fully physically present with us again. He will dwell amongst men. And we see he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And we're gonna look in a minute in the here and now and really dig in to that crying and mourning and pain, not for the sake of morbidity or to make us feel bad, but to make us understand what we will one day experience in the absence of these things that define us right now. There's one meaningful distinction. We're going to read a couple more passages in Revelation and see other things that are reinstated that are redeemed from Eden. But there's one meaningful distinction. In Eden, there was the prohibition against eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we saw that in a second, when Adam and Eve did eat from that tree, they were banished. They were exiled. They were cut off, and death entered the world and all of the consequences that flow from it. But in heaven, in the new Jerusalem, there will be no such prohibition, no such threat, because Jesus died on the cross so that our sins are forever paid for, and we will confidently be able to embrace that new heaven and live in it knowing that we'll never be banished, never be exiled. Let's keep going. Uh, Verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. So how cool is that to think about, right? We won't need the sun or the moon We won't need artificial lighting. Light will emanate from God and from Jesus, the Lamb. It'll make it so we have infinite day. There will be no night. They'll be so centrally in our presence that 
will bathe in their light and what comes off of them will be with them forever. And then in chapter 22, verse 1, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So here we see the river with the water of life restored from Eden. It will flow abundantly, infinitely, eternally. And we see the tree of life that will produce its fruit 12 months of the year. Again, abundantly, infinitely, eternally. It says, God and the Lamb will reign forever and ever. The infinite. I think one thing that's been helpful for me, it's so hard for us to envision heaven. Right, we have this snapshot in Revelation, but we can't and, and we won't come anywhere near fully understanding it until we're there. But there has been this paradigm that's been helpful to me in the last couple of years as I've tried to think about what would heaven be like, and that's the infinite versus the finite. In Eden, we were made to be eternal. God's creation was infinite. And in the new Jerusalem in heaven, it will be that way again. So much of our suffering today and in between comes from the finite. It comes from the fact that not only death is here, but all the things that flow from it, the grief, aging, we'll lose our abilities, we'll lose our functionality. We were made to have a purpose, right? In Eden, the purpose was to work and care for the garden. We see a restoration of the purpose in this Revelation 22, where it says, his servants will serve him. God and the lamb will be there on their thrones centrally, and, and our purpose will be to serve and worship them. We'll have a purpose again. But here in this life, we don't have infinite purpose. We sort of move from job to job and, and, and try to figure it out. We yearn for that infinite purpose. And so I want to dig a little deeper to help us really unpack that dynamic that this life is hard. We have suffering. And it's hard because of the finite, because of the consequences that, that flow from sin entering the world. But we weren't made for this world. We were made for the infinite. We were made for Eden, and we were made for heaven, the new Jerusalem. So let's, let's, let's take a look. Let's start with death. 165,000 people die every day in the world. I think that number can be remote and accessible until we think, those of us who have had loved ones die, about the grief and the pain and the mourning and the suffering that comes with that, the time it takes where we're not consumed or overwhelmed by it. 
165,000 people die in our world every day. There's millions of people that start that journey every day. We weren't made for the finite. We weren't made for mortality. We were made for the infinite, for the eternal. We were made for infinite creation to be around us. So in Eden and again in New Jerusalem, we see that the the fruit is not only abundant, but it's infinite. There will be no hunger. There will be no thirst. Same with the river. It will flow infinitely. But we know here today, that's not the case. Right? We we read in the news as, as... Population numbers grow and our resources become more strained of, of all the consequences we're dealing with now and the, the, the possibilities of more horrible consequences in the future. According to the UN, 25,000 people, including 10,000 children, die from hunger and malnourishment every single day. According to the World Wildlife Federation, 1.1 billion people lack access to water. billion suffer from water scarcity at least one month of the year. And by 2025, two-thirds of the world's population may suffer from water scarcity. And that's something we have a hard time even imagining in this country. And we don't necessarily know all of the causes here on Earth, right? Scientists say overpopulation, deforestation, climate change, and And some or all of those may be the case, but we do know the ultimate cause. The ultimate cause is original sin in the garden. It's the fact that we were exiled from the infinite and live now in the finite. We lost our infinite, unlimited access to God's presence, right? We see in the Garden of Eden, God walked physically with Adam and Eve. We see in The new Jerusalem in in heaven, God and Jesus' thrones will be in the middle of the city. And again, light will emanate from them. We'll be so close to them, so connected to them that we won't even need light outside of what they provide. That's what we were meant for, that central connection to God. We don't have that right now, so idols often take the place. And many of those idols are, are, are good, are part of what God created, right? Resources, we often worship materialism and, and wealth, or we're searching for a purpose, and so we worship careers and success, or we're searching for connection, and we worship relationships and each other. We weren't made to worship those things. We were made to worship the infinite God. And let's talk more about that sense of purpose. So looking at the curse in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God curses them, and by extension us, he says, to Adam cursed is the ground because of you, Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. Work was created to be good, to be infinitely productive. 
to have a purpose. But without that, work is hard, it's toilsome. Many of us jump from job to job or career to career because we're yearning for that infinite sense of purpose that we can't find here in the finite. Or some of us have a hard time finding work at all. It wasn't made to be that way, and it won't be that way one day. And then let's look at the second half of the curse, what God said to Eve. He said, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Think about our insecurity in relationships. Even many marriages, we're scared that our spouse or our friends or our girlfriends, boyfriends will quit loving us, that they'll leave us. And that's not how it was designed. Adam and Eve were made in Eden to be eternal partners, helpers. But we've lost that and we can feel it. We yearn for the infinite security of that relationship. Samuel Beckett is a Nobel-winning author and playwright and poet, and in 1969, he wrote a play called Breath. It's 35 seconds long. The start of it is darkness. No lights on the stage. Off stage, you hear the sounds of childbirth. Then the lights come on, and on the stage, and I quote, it's littered with miscellaneous rubbish. And you hear the sound of breathing while the lights are on. Then there's a scream, and the lights go off. That's his commentary on our lives here in the finite. Similarly, there's a quote from Thomas Hobbes that you may have heard some version of. It's, life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Now, they may be overdoing it a little bit, um, but I think if we're honest, we've all had days or even seasons where we also kind of get their point, too. We weren't made for the finite. We're made for the infinite. But there's one thing that Samuel Beckett and Thomas Hobbes miss. And we know that, that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross so that not only we can eventually be reunited with God and Jesus in heaven, but also so that after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, God could give us his helper, the Holy Spirit. And we have that now. And that's meaningful. It's significant. I want to spend the rest of our time talking about that. Because although I want us to think about the future that we'll inherit in heaven in the new Jerusalem and have an expectant hope that will carry us through this life, it's important we're pointed to that, we're called to that. But I also want us to know that all is not lost today. God hasn't abandoned us. Although he's not fully present with us, as he will be one day again, he is still here with us in the Holy Spirit. And so there's, there's two stories I want to tell you that I think help, help illustrate this. One is the story of a woman named Kylie White. Um, she is the wife of an executive at Chick-fil-A named John White. He also happens to be one of Truett Cathy's grandsons. And I work at Chick-fil-A, and I've, I've had the opportunity to hear her 
speak a couple of times. She has shared her story with us, and it's a remarkable one, and so I want to share it with you today. So Kylie, by her own description, is a mom in her mid-30s, and in 2019, she started to have trouble with her eyesight. And specifically, in the distance, there was a lot of blurriness on the periphery. There was blurriness, and so she wanted to get checked out. So she went to the optometrist. They put the chart in front of her. She zooms through the lines, and they say, Kylie, you know, don't see the problem. 2020 vision, congratulations. And she said, well, thanks, but I don't think we're getting at it. it you know, are there any other ways to test eyesight? It's, again, it's, it's kind of in the distance on the periphery. And so the optometrist went to the back of the room in the corner and started waving her arms. And she said, yes, that's it. I can't see your arm. It's so blurry. So the optometrist grew a little more concerned and she did some more tests and talked to other doctors, and it resulted in a devastating diagnosis. Uh, Kylie had retinitis pigmentosa, which is a degenerative eye disease that uh, damages and kills cells in the eye until complete blindness. There is no cure, no therapy. It just takes its course and happens. And she was told on that day in 2019 that already the scan revealed that 58% of the cells in her eye had been damaged by the disease. Now, Kylie was and is a woman of faith, and she has a great story about in that room, in the doctor's office, when he diagnosed her. She said the Holy Spirit came over her, and, and, that, and I'll quote her now, when the doctor told me I had a degenerative eye disease, what I heard was that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. When the doctor said you will first lose your vision at night, then your peripheral vision then it will be a tunnel until total darkness. I heard, I have plans for you to prosper, plans for hope and a future. She said, I had despair, but also peace, assurance, and purpose. So the next couple years went by, and her eyesight, in fact, degenerated and had gotten down to the, the tunnel version. And she was talking with uh, one of her spiritual mentors who had kind of helped her along the way and been a friend and the mentor said, Kylie, have you ever prayed for healing? And Kylie said, no. And the friend said, why not? And Kylie said, well, pretty early on, I felt like God gave me this passage. It's uh, John 9, 2 through 3. Talking about Jesus, it says, his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And she explained that she thought God had given her a peace about her condition because it would minister to other people, that he got the glory for helping her state of mind and emotional well-being and allowing her to continue to be so positive and that it ministered to, it glorified God, ministered to others and glorified God. And, And her friend looked at her and said, that's great, Kylie, but I think you're missing the point of the story. In the next verse, the man was healed. And so she said, I challenge you to read all the healings in Mark and Matthew and consider whether or not you'll pray for healing. And so Kylie did, and she decided she wanted to. And so on March 31st of 2021, she met with her small group, and her friend was the leader, and they prayed for healing. And they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and her friend said, amen. And 
looked at Kylie expectantly and said, Kylie, how's your eyesight? She said, it's, it's still tunnels. And she did this with her hands to show what she meant, what the scope of her vision was. And her friend grabbed her hands, and with renewed fervor, they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. And as they prayed, her friend moved her hands back, and light started to flood the periphery of Kylie's eyes. It made her dizzy and nauseous and overwhelmed until her hands were back here. And they said, amen. And Kylie realized her peripheral vision, all of her vision had been restored for the first time in years. And her, her main doctor was a specialist at Duke. She wasn't going to be able to get to him for some time. So she knew she'd been healed, but she wanted confirmation. So she made an, an appointment with a local optometrist and he took a scan and then met with her, and he said, Kylie, who diagnosed you with this? There's no evidence of any damage to your eye cells at all. And she eventually was able to go to her specialist, and, and there's no medical explanation whatsoever for what happened. God healed her. And through the Holy Spirit, we do have access to a piece of the infinite, God chose to remove that consequence of sin, of the finite, of the world that we're in for Kylie in that instance by restoring her eyesight. Her eyesight would have been fully restored in heaven one day, but God chose to do it now through his spirit. Second story, C.S. Lewis, famous Christian author and thinker, probably has a lot of fans in this room. I'm certainly one. Um, he had an amazing life. And if you haven't read a biography of C.S. Lewis, I'd commend it to you. I think it gives you a greater appreciation uh, for his work. But he was a career bachelor. And into his 50s, he was kind of living the dream, having beers with J.R. Tolkien and G.K. Chesterton until the wee hours of the morning at pubs in Oxford, conversations we'd probably all love to be a part of. He and his brother would go on motorcycle rides through the country on the weekends he was a bachelor. He loved being a bachelor. He had no intention of being married. And then when he was 51, he started corresponding with an American woman who still lived in America. She was soon to be a divorcee. She was born ethnically Jewish, but had recently converted to Christianity in part because of C.S. Lewis's writings and teachings. C.S. Lewis was famous at, at the time. And so she reached out to him and, and started corresponding. Her name was Joy Davidson. And joined it up getting divorced and moving to England, and they became great friends, and their friendship turned into romance. And at 57 years old, C.S. Lewis was married for the first time. And he writes about that time in his life and how incredible it was, how being able to experience romantic love and this companionship, this, this partnership with this woman who he thought was uniquely made for him, just blew him away. But within a year... Joy contracted a, or didn't contract, but was diagnosed with a rare form of bone cancer. And they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and it went into remission. And for the next couple of years, life was so sweet. Lewis writes about it and, and talks about how it was even sweeter than before, that every kiss, every caress, Every conversation he appreciated all the more, and he thought maybe God had given them that period so they'd appreciate it all the more. But then, two years later, the cancer returned, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and she died within six months. 
And Lewis journaled at the time, and those journals became a book called A Grief Observed. It's a remarkable book, uh, Meditation on Grief, that I also commend you if you haven't read it. And he doesn't pull any punches. It's raw. He talks about how he really spiraled, and he doubted. He, he doubted the existence of God. He doubted whether God was good. He doubted whether God was omnipotent, but he fought and he worked through it. And in the end, he realized that as he was wrestling and, and, and challenging God and, and struggling, that, that, that God was there. That the whole time, through his grieving, through his anger, God was there. And that it was the Holy Spirit that had, he'd abided in and he'd been able to process the grief and, and, and get through. And in the end of the book, he says, I need Christ And we see in those two stories different ways that we access the Holy Spirit. There are times when we'll go to God with hope and expectation that by faith he'll heal us or our loved ones. And and through the Holy Spirit, we'll see that peace of the infinite come here in the finite and there will be healing. But we are in the finite and We have to deal with the consequences of death and all that flows from it. And there will be a lot of times when the healing doesn't come. But that doesn't mean that the spirit isn't there and it isn't there to help us in the in-between. It's what can get us through those moments of grief in those times. I want to quickly, as we close... Look at three different proverbs. Um, we're blessed with the Spirit and with a glimpse, glimpses into the infinite, into the eternal, into what we're going to inherit one day. I think worship today was that. And we can be that for each other. In Proverbs, we see the tree of life mentioned three times. The tree of life that's the perfect metaphor for that infinite, for what we will inherit one day. And it shows ways that we, the church, are able to provide those glimpses to each other. We'll start uh, Proverbs 3, verses 13 through 18. Blessed is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding. For she, she being the wisdom and understanding, is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies, Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who embrace her. Those who lay hold of her will be blessed. I love that description. It's beautiful. It reminds us of Eden and of the new Jerusalem of heaven. But that's something that we can experience here on earth. When we seek wisdom and understanding through the Holy Spirit, God can give us that glimpse. Next, we'll look at Proverbs 11, verse 30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. The righteous, the saints, us, the church, the fruit we produce when we love and serve one another. It's a tree of life. It's a glimpse into the eternal. 
that we can bless each other with here on earth. One more. Proverbs 15.4. The tongue that brings healing is a tree of life, but a deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. Here we see we have a choice in this life. We can use our words to add more death and destruction, or we can use our words to heal and give a glimpse to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to those around us of the eternal. Um, We're going to close with ministry time, and as Bo and the ministry teams come up, I want to give you a few thoughts, a few categories that might be helpful to consider during ministry time. So first, do you need healing? Is today the day when you need to step forward and expectantly and with hope and faith ask God to to heal you physically? Um, We have oil up here in the ministry teams. If you come forward for healing, can anoint you with the oil. It's not because the oil is magical or supernatural, but it's just a sign of the faith we have in God that he can heal us through the Spirit this side of heaven, this side of the New Jerusalem. Or if you're struggling with depression and anxiety, if, if you're kind of stuck in the conception of the world that Samuel Beckett or Thomas Hobbes had, if it all seems dark, if it all seems black, if you just see the finite, if you can't glimpse the infinite, come forward and get prayer. The Holy Spirit can help you with that. Finally, if your vision of heaven, of the infinite, of what's possible has grown stale and isn't real, isn't tangible anymore, come forward for prayer that God might renew it, that he might give you a real tangible expectant hope for what we'll inherit one day. All right, let me pray for us. Father, we are so thankful that you made us for the infinite that you love us so much that you've created a place where we will be able to be in your full presence forever. That you want to dwell among us and light our existence forever. Father, thank you that you have given us your spirit to help us now too. I ask that each of us would be overwhelmed by your presence this week. That we would get a glimpse of what's to come. Jesus, come. We love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week.